podcast. Uh, Bless your boys, your home for Tigers baseball and beyond on the SB Nation platform. I'm your host, Brandon Day, and we have a special guest for you this evening. Um, R.J. Anderson, who covers baseball for CBS Sports um, and has written in the past for ESPN, Fangraphs, um, Baseball Prospectus, and Baseball America, which is kind of like the triple crown of baseball (laughs) analytics writing, um, as well as Newsweek. R.J., how's it going tonight? It's going well, and boy, you know, you start lifting all those off, and I'm like, geez, I've been around a long time, haven't I? I basically, I've covered the covered the <laughs> landscape on you know baseball websites, so it's wild. Yeah, you've yeah you've definitely got a pretty good insight. You've been doing this a while too, kind of like you yeah. know like the whole sabermetrics era, if there is such a thing. You've been covering the sport. Um, has it? I mean, has it kind of been a wild ride from that perspective when you think back to when you started out? It's funny because I started when I was 16, and oh, I yeah. Not, yeah, I started on D-Rays Bay, and I had no business writing in the public sector. I probably had no business writing in the private sector, honestly. And, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't have allowed myself to write, but you know, it, it is really interesting how the industry has changed. Not only you know the writing industry, but also the baseball industry itself. And I read Moneyball when I was 18, and that kind of helped set me down the sabermetric path. Now. With that said, I grew up reading the BP annuals. I think I got my first one when I was 13 or 14. And, you know, it's just, it's funny how everything worked out because I remember telling my grandmother, I'm going to write for this place one day. And, you know, at the time I was like 13 and, you know, 13 year olds tell their grandmothers all kinds of things about what they're going to do in the future. And yet there I was a few years later and um, I was, you know, fortunate enough to write for five of those things. So, you know, it's pretty cool. And I've been very fortunate to, uh, be able to do this and to, you know, have some success with it. So I'm definitely a lucky, lucky individual on that perspective. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a strange time out there. You know, um, not everyone is pivoting to video, but there's, there's been kind of yeah. some, uh, there's just been yeah, kind of a bad vibe in the air, you know, a little bit the past, you know, the past few years as some sites have gone away, others that seem to be consolidating their coverage. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a tough, tough go these days. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately CBS, we do do video, and it's even something that I've had to put into my skill set, but you know we still recognize the value of the written word and of you know long form and stuff like that. So you know it's um, again I'm lucky to be at a place where you know they they value that and they're also looking to innovate. They're looking to I mean we just rolled out CBS uh, HQ, which is a video streaming service, 24/7 sports news highlights, blah blah blah. So it's pretty cool to work for a place that sees the value of both mediums and is dedicated to pushing both forward. Yeah, absolutely. And has, and kind of has the backing to, you know, to do both well. Yeah, yeah for sure. All right. So, I mean, the story of this off season has, has been sort of the lack of stories about this off season. There's been plenty to, to plenty to talk about, but um, I mean, everyone at this point is aware that the, um, the free agent period was uh, basically started like two weeks ago. It feels like um, took all off season to get going. And we saw a bunch of trades and things not happening instead. Um, I mean, what, you know, it's such a big, it's a big subject, but you know, what's your, what's your kind of overall take on, on what's happened this off season and how it relates to maybe the collective bargaining agreement um, that was signed last off season? Well, I'm concerned because I mean, this is a big topic, so there's a lot to cover here, but you know, obviously it seems like the union has lost some of its uh, strength that it had in the past. And this last, this last collective bargaining agreement, excuse me, they certainly made some trades and trade-offs that don't seem beneficial to uh, the players, and it doesn't seem beneficial to getting these big contracts and to continuing to raise the bar. And you know, the one we've seen come up time and again this winter has been 
the CBT, the luxury tax agreement. You're seeing uh, basically every big spender try to get under that number, try to reset their penalties. So, well, you know, if you believe the company line, so that next winter when Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, potentially Clayton Kershaw and Dallas Keuchel, and, you know, we can keep listing names here, but so when that crop of free agents hit the market, they can go out there and give them the big deal. And I don't know how much I believe that because, you know, basically every team in baseball is underneath that number now, save for, I think, two or three. And there's only so many of those blockbuster free agents going to be available. And realistically, you know, how many teams are going to are gonna have a shot at signing Bryce Harper? My guess is it's maybe maybe three, four teams, maybe, yeah. because, you know, he's going to want to win. He's going to want to go someplace that's nice to live and so on and so forth. So I think that's more of an excuse than anything. And I think even the overage penalties are not as severe as to promote this kind of behavior. So I think, frankly, I think this offseason has been nonsense on the team's part. Um, you know, you saw just a couple <laughs> of days ago a report surfaced that the Royals had offered Neil Walker a minor league deal. And that is absurd to me because, for one thing, Neil Walker is a perfectly fine starting second baseman. He's consistently been a league average or better hitter, league average or better player. He's 32, 33, but you know what? There's no reason to think he's just going to fall off. Maybe he's only worth one, one and a half wins next season. Well, that's still better than many, many teams will be running out of second base, including the Tigers. Yeah. And on top of that, you have to be, you have to think about this a little deeper. For the Royals, not only to value him at, to the extent that they offer him a minor league deal, but also to feel confident that a minor league deal might actually get the job done and you might actually accept that that's just a horrible sign for baseball's health because again Neil Walker is a fine player and if if people if players in Neil Walker's class are being deemed minor league deal worthy players we're in a very bad situation and it's going to get worse in the near future so I'm concerned about the health of the game I'm concerned about that's a labor strike I'm concerned about uh, you know the players getting their due and I'm concerned about the health of the game when, you know, 10, 10 or so teams aren't even seemingly trying to compete this season. I mean, the Pittsburgh Pirates have not signed a single free agent to a big league deal this winter. Yeah. That's a team that, you know, they could use a free agent. I mean, you know, there are a lot of teams out there who have used some of these free agents remaining and that they're not really pursuing them, that they're not really trying to make a deal is very worrisome to me. And I think it's going in a bad direction and, I don't see any way this gets better in the immediate future, unfortunately. It does feel like, you know, at a certain point, this is going to just have to come to, you know, some kind of real headbutting because, you know, I, you know, you already see people kind of, um, kind of downplaying it. You know, I've heard this on MLB radio and some other places where, okay, JD Martinez signed for a deal that isn't that far from what you might expect, and you Darvish, you know, similar fashion. But it's it's these mid tier guys, especially veterans who are, you know, two, three war players that you can probably expect to do that next year. And these guys, you know, can't get a bite anywhere. You know, Todd Frazier, um, you know, coming after, you know, coming off being a, you know, a reasonably good part of a Yankees team that almost went to the World Series. You know, no one, no one wants the guy, you know, he's, he, he can't, you know, he can't pull double digit, you know, AAVs out of anybody. Um, yeah. And I mean, we still have Jake Arrieta out there. You know, I wonder, um, what do you think is going to happen the rest of this, this spring training? Because there's so many free agents still available and you know we are we'll always kind of see injuries and teams you know dropping and adding at this point are we i mean are we in for a pretty wild four weeks would you say that there's going to be a lot of wheeling and dealing still to go 
Jeez, man, I, I've been saying yes to that all winter long, and at some point it feels like you just can't say yes anymore, and I just honestly don't know. I don't know where Arietta is going to land, and I don't know when he's going to land there because you know, I would have expected him to be off the board by now. I, I know there are certainly some red flags with him as it pertains to his age and you know stuff like that, but at the same time, when you look at him and you compare him to some of the options that these contenders and fringe contenders are running out there, it just seems like a no-brainer that a team like maybe the Giants or the Nationals or the Angels, and again, we can keep listing teams, the Rangers, like why haven't one of them jumped on him? And yeah. go ahead. Oh, yeah, it was, and it just seems like such a perfect time to be, you know, kind of a fringe contender. I mean, you look yeah. at, I mean, obviously, you know, Shohei Otani showing up is, is something you can't predict, but, you know, Billy Epler, um, for very little, has pieced together, you know, a really nice infield to go with, you know, Trout and re-signing Justin Upton. Um, you know, the options are there, and yeah, it's um, it's yeah. it's kind of baffling. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I just keep thinking, you know, that, you know, it, you know, we people kind of, you know, we're putting this on, you know, Scott Boris, but in the end, you know, it feels like a lot of, and I hate to say this, a lot of what Scott Boris had to say about, you know, the, the way the owners are starting to operate is true. And do you think it's been a, I mean, it's a serious disadvantage for the players just to have to wait this long anyway, right? Because they start working out, you could possibly get injured, um, you're more desperate. So even if there isn't like an actual collusion, there's sort of a, things are just working out by the, by how long this has taken and how, what the time crunch sort of is at this point. Yeah, and, you know, if there's not collusion going on, then baseball has done a really horrible job of uh, eliminating that myth or that concept because, you know, the deals have been down across the board. And, you know, here's the thing. You can tell that baseball fears Scott Boris unlike they fear any other agent because baseball has come out and basically subtweeted Boris in all these press releases. They won't name him, but they will point the finger in his direction. And I thought that he got the upper hand on them recently when MLB released a statement suggesting that they knew that free agents had nine-figure offers. And, you know, baseball is not supposed to have any insight into the <laughs> offers that players are receiving. So I think Boris won that exchange, and I think he does have a lot of valid points about how uh, baseball is being ran. And, you know, again, we have, what, 10 teams who everyone's seemingly writing off is not really trying this season. And you mentioned that this is a good time for a team to be a fringe contender. It is a great time to be a French contender because if you're a craven opportunist, like Billy Epler has been with some of his moves, like uh, you know a couple other teams have been with their moves, you can go out there and you can add two to five wins pretty quickly, and that changes an 80-win team into an 85-win team, maybe better than 85 wins depending on who exactly you're replacing on your roster. And that takes you from on the bubble as a contender to right in the thick of the wild card race. I think Dakota had the American League wild card winner checking out like 84 wins. So yeah. you can go from mediocre to competitive in a hurry. And I don't know that you can convince me that staying at, you know, 80 wins and picking 15, 16, whatever, and next June's draft is better than trying to go for a wildcard spot now because, you know, people blame on the super teams or whatever. Well, those teams aren't going anywhere. Like the Dodgers are not going to get bad overnight. The Astros aren't. So on and so forth. You're going to at some point have to deal with those teams. And beyond that, there's always good teams. There's always elite teams. You're never going to find uh, a cycle here where you don't have a couple of really good teams in baseball. You have to build and overcome that. You can't just shy away from that. Otherwise, what's even the point? So yeah, I really question a lot of the priorities here, and I question a lot of the defenses given to teams this winter. And I think, again, it's a bad thing for baseball 
And I don't see how you can spin this as a negative unless you're just being naive or, you know, just being hopeful, blindly optimistic or whatever, because I think this is a, a very bad thing for baseball and I don't like it a bit. Yeah, and I mean, and I, I just any argument that they're not making enough money is, you know, it's just oh. kind of ludicrous. I mean, we all know, you know, they all <laughs> pulled what forty or fifty million dollars out of um, the sale of MLB Advanced Media to Disney, or at least a part of it. Um, you know, I mean, that money is coming in. We all know that they can spend if they want to spend. And I still, you know, and you start to hear, you know, the people coming out like, oh, the players are too greedy, you know, and that that is just music to to ownership's ears, you know, to anyone oh, yeah. who knows about the you know the strike from. 94 um you know that that's exactly what they would like you to think but um you know it just feels like there's a there's kind of an irony to the fact you know at least to a detroit fan that you know mike illich passed away um basically about this time last year and things have gone to hell ever since <laughs> yeah uh, and you're right because it's a 10 billion dollar industry and these are successful businessmen these are billionaires and i guess i would say this if if being a baseball owner is so bad then why exactly did a couple of investors spend a billion dollars in arguably the worst situation in baseball? Yeah. And I'm talking about the Miami Marlins there. Again, you, you know, you're not going to convince me that there's not money to be made as a baseball owner. And these guys are so good at cooking the books that there's, you know, they can make it look like they're losing money, but they're not. Because if they were losing money, wouldn't they be getting out of the game? Would you really have someone putting a billion dollars down to buy the Marlins? No, you wouldn't. And you're right, uh, history repeats itself over and over. Time and again, we've seen ownership wants a salary cap so they can pocket more of the money. Players don't because, you know, they deserve their fair share. And you see the same rhetoric ran out. You see, you know, the same power plays. It's, you know, history really does repeat itself. If you're familiar, like you said, with the 94 strike, if you're familiar with even some of the labor strife before 94, you're going to see the same thing tried out time and again. And, you know, Rob Manfred was kind of bred for this position. Yeah. He has been he has been a power player for baseball, even dating back to that '94 strike. And I know Tony Clark has a reputation of being as a good guy, of being a good guy, excuse me. And obviously, you know, Tiger fans would uh, know a fair amount about that. But I can't help but feel like he's overmatched here because it's not because he's a former player. Although certainly, I think a lawyer would probably be a little bit better in the negotiation aspect, just by virtue of that being their job. It's also that you know Manfred. I think he's a lot more clever and a lot more savvy than most people give him credit for. He has the whole aw shucks demeanor, but you know, this guy, there's some shark to him. There has to be some shark to him to have the position he's had and to be involved in the things he's been involved in in terms of negotiations. So again, it's not a good situation if you're a fan of players getting their share and you're right. You know, people talk about player salaries being out of control and sure there's a legitimate debate to be had about whether players are overpaid or whether they should be paid this relative to some of the ever uh, more important social positions. But that's usually not the argument being made so much as, excuse me, usually that argument ignores that owners are also overpaid if you (laughs) want to compare them to teachers or whatever. The difference is I can't go on thoughts contracts and pull up how much the CEO of, you know, this team or that team is making or how much uh, the owner is making or how much the owner is going to make when he sells the franchise for, you know, five times what he paid for. It. So right. I can't pull those numbers up. I can pull up how much Prince Fielder made or uh, Miguel Cabrera or whatever. And so, yeah, it's very easy to say the players are greedy, but, you know, this entire offseason has not been a good look for the owners, first and foremost. 
Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've never heard of an owner blowing out his UCL and, you know, missing, <laughs> missing his big payday. You know, it doesn't work that way. You know, um, I mean, it's owning a, a major league franchise is really feels like a license to print money. It's very hard to imagine how you could possibly lose on that. You know, the, the Wilpons have had, you know, obviously financial troubles for, for many years and they still haven't sold the Mets. Um, so, you know, there's obviously benefits somewhere along the way to owning a major league franchise. It seems to be working out for most of them. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's no bullpen sessions on a yacht, right? So, you know, they don't ever have to worry about any of that and they don't have to necessarily worry about the travel. And I mean, we're not even talking about the minor league player lifestyle and the scout lifestyle. I mean, even, you know, the lower level front office executive lifestyle, um, those guys aren't making bank and they're not necessarily living great lifestyles. So the owners are the ones who benefit the most. And then you could say the players, but the owners for first and foremost are the ones who are uh, really, uh, you know, shoveling, shoveling in the dough, so to speak. Yeah. Has anything that you've noticed changed in ownership in terms of, you know, there are, there are less of sort of the old school, like, you know, single owner in charge, George Steinbrenner, Mike Illich types around, and there's more, you know, sort of, you know, management groups involved. I mean, is that, is that part of, of part of the reason why perhaps teams are less likely to go for it or, or to push to win when they, you know, when their calculations tell them, well, we can still turn a decent profit here um, and, and probably, you know, put up a halfway competitive team like the Pirates, you know, seem to do just about every season. I mean, is that a change that is, that is impacting this, do you think? That's an interesting theory. I, I don't know, but I would say that it's probably reasonable to suggest that owners nowadays run these teams more like businesses and less like, you know, their personal fantasy team. Yeah, it's not and a vanity vanity project as much anymore. Exactly. And they're also hiring executives who potentially come from Wall Street. I mean, the Rays, for instance, are littered with Wall Street types or were littered with Wall Street types. And, you know, you have tons of, ex- uh, excuse me, of economic majors in every front office and you have all the quants. And, you know, these guys <laughs> uh, grew up reading Moneyball and reading Baseball Prospectus. And they all kind of got indoctrinated into the same thinking that, you know, it's not worth necessarily going out and signing all these veteran players for all this big money when you can perhaps uh, draft and develop your own. And, you know, it's kind of become, it's like the church of efficiency. You know, they all want to, yeah, they all want to go to the church of efficiency. And it's not just about winning ball games. It's about whether winning those ball games is worth the uh, marginal cost. So yeah, it's a different ball game in a sense to use a tired, uh, play of words there it's an entirely different ball game than how it was 15 years ago and certainly how it was you know 30 plus years ago and again i'm not sure it's necessarily for the better yeah and you know i, I was going to bring this up later but i'll i'll say it instead i mean i do wonder sometimes if if fans aren't almost you know and i don't i'm one of those people who doesn't tell people you know how to be a fan at all like you know if you're someone who doesn't give a rip about sabermetrics or statistics in any capacity that's perfectly fine if you're someone who's got 10 fantasy teams and obsesses over the data constantly that's quite all right as well but i do wonder if there isn't you know if that attitude hasn't seeped down to a lot of more of the hardcore fan base to where i see people you know arguing against signing jd martinez because you know <laughs> it might hurt us three or four years down the road you know i've seen boston fans who were saying that before the, the deal went through i mean maybe they were just you know salty because he hadn't signed yet some of that plays into it probably but um yeah, I do wonder if if fans kind of aren't, you know, not complicit, but aren't a little bit, um, yeah, just a little less wary of, of man- management and ownership than they used to be. Whereas, yeah. you know, you used to just scream at George Steinbrenner. You know, George, George Steinbrenner couldn't walk the streets without getting yelled at. 
Yeah, I think there are a few different dynamics at play there. And I think one of them is, you know, fans naturally associate more with their teams than the players on their teams. And, you know, nowadays there's such a high turnover of players that you start following with Detroit Tigers today, there's a chance that in two years there's only one or two players remaining from today. And, you know, that's the nature of the beast for basically every team. So, you know, when a Justin Verlander moves on, you didn't stop becoming, excuse me, you didn't stop rooting for the Tigers. And you might not have stopped rooting for Justin Verlander, but your loyalty was, you know, foremost with the Tigers. And the other dynamic at play is that you're right, you know, um, some of the sabermetric ideas have certainly made fans a little bit more, I want to say, open to short-term failure in the name of long-term success. And, mm. you know, the Chicago Cubs and the Houston Astros are the teams that get mentioned all the time. You know, they stunk out loud for a few seasons. They drafted and traded well, developed well. And those are your two last World Series champions. Well, now every team wants to copy them. And, you know, on the one hand, if you're an optimist, you're saying, well, that's because the strategy worked. And, of course, nobody who says that notes that, you know, at the time, there weren't 10 other teams trying the same strategy. It's because, you know, those were one of two or three teams trying that. The other thing is that plays perfectly into ownership and management's hands because what does it mean if you're not trying to win? It means you can sell a five-year plan, which in turn means there's no short-term pressure to A, win ball games and B, spend money. So you basically get five years of job security to do what? Field glorified minor league teams at the big league level and do it in such an efficient way that you know, your owner's not going to fire you because, you know, what he's paying out <laughs> half of what the uh, another guy might um, demand on payroll in order to win games now. So it's a really, really great time to be an owner or a general manager because of the fact that, yeah, you get job security for showing zero results. And you can say, well, you know, if you don't draft or develop, well, you get fired. Well, sure. But, you know, it might take five to six years instead of two to three like it might have you know two decades ago so oh that's a good point yeah it's a great time to be a general manager who doesn't you know particularly want to win games or rather who isn't perhaps um, meant to be a general manager I mean you know you look at Atlanta and if there weren't for the circumstances around you know their GM change that were beyond you know wins and losses you know it probably wouldn't have mattered for another year or two whether they were actually developing players and in a place to win ball games. And we've seen this, I guess this is the other point I want to make on this too. You kind of see the idea that losing games in order to get draft picks is the way to go now. And it's crazy to me because we talk all the time about how prospects fail and even good prospects can fail. So there's risk involved with this. And yet for whatever reason, we kind of stop, um, Stop mentioning that risk, I guess I would say. Like you only see risk mentioned with veteran players now. You know, you trade four yeah. prospects for um I don't know, just throw out a name, like, you know, some veteran left-handed starter pitcher or whatever. Trade four prospects for him, and people talk about the risk that he might blow his elbow out and he might decline. Well, you know, you take a college pitcher first overall, there's risk that he busts. And you look at the Astros, I mean, heck, you know, they got Carlos Correa. There are ever two first picks, they didn't work, you know, Appel and Aiken, that didn't work out. And why are the Astros good? Um, Part of it is Correa. Part of it is because Dallas Keuchel became an ace out of nowhere. Part of it is because Jose Altuve became MVP out of nowhere. When they signed Jose Altuve to that extension, I can promise you they didn't ever expect him to win an MVP. Yeah. So, you know, there are circumstances beyond just drafting and developing well. There's also getting lucky. And 
you have to get lucky in order to take the right guy in the draft. You have to get lucky for them to develop correctly and, you know, so on and so forth. It takes a lot of luck no matter what your plan is. But it seems like we kind of ignore that when the plan being talked about just so happens to be the one employed by the last two World Series champions. Yeah, you know, it kind of that kind of goes to a point I was going to make, too, because I was going to ask you, like, do you think teams believe in their prospects more now because they they have more data on them or because you know just in general it seems like teams are much more reluctant to trade their their top prospects won't give up as much for for players and are you know are just much more confident that these guys are going to make it and there's no real evidence that you know anything has changed in terms of you know everyone's ability to evaluate these guys yeah i saw a daryl morey quote the houston rockets gm from the sloan conference where he said the nba teams are actually worse at drafting now than they were 10 years ago and you know, NBA has been undergoing some of the similar uh, data and player tracking developments that baseball has. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, the NBA, you go straight to the league from college. There's no minor league system, really. So, you know, if they've gotten worse at projecting who can step right onto the court and have success, then you would have to think that baseball teams probably haven't gotten a whole lot better and maybe have gotten worse, too. And I think. It gives back a little bit to the efficiency thing. If you trade two of your top prospects and they go on to be starting caliber, excuse me, starting caliber players, then you know that's a million dollars for two starters that you could have spent on. Whereas if you trade them for a guy who costs ten million a year and he's just a starting caliber player, well, you know you you're paying an extra nine million for potentially less production because you're getting two instead of one. And so yeah, you're right that nowadays teams value those prospects way more than they did you know, 10, 15 years ago, it's harder to get these big packages. I mean, look at what, look at what David Price fetched versus what, uh, shoot, you know, just pick a name. You Darvish or, yeah. Yeah, you know, you keep going back and it seems like the packages that used to be commonplace for these guys are just kind of absurd in present day terms. Like no one seems willing to give up those kind of packages nowadays. And again, I don't think that's good for the game. I think, you know, the prospect hugging and, the reduction of these trade returns encourages this tanking behavior because if you're a small market team, you might not have any other way to acquire an impact, well, impact caliber talent who you can afford for more than a season or two. Well, quote unquote afford, right, right, or a season <laughs> or two outside of playing this, uh, you know, tanking game. So you know, there's a lot of factors at play there that I think the the um, race to become more efficient and the idea that efficiency is king has uh, led to, and I don't necessarily think it's a good thing. Yeah, I'm, I almost wonder if we've reached a point where there are a lot, there may be too many people in front offices who who just sort of don't believe in luck. Because I think, like, luck is a really important point. You know, I, I just watched a Tigers team with J.D. Martinez, you know, Ian Kinsler, Justin Upton, like all these guys stumble to a last, you know, Justin Verlander stumble to a last place finish. I mean, you just... You just never know in this game. Um, weird things happen. Deals go down at, you know, at midseason, and it is really hard to predict. But to kind of take that to the Tigers now, since the Tigers are, uh, you're, you're down in the cellar with us here, and it's, it's <laughs> dank and dripping, and I've got buckets everywhere. Um, you know, the, the Tigers, you know, finally kind of pulled the trigger and sold this year, um, and they really hadn't traded away too many prospects um, in recent years. You know, we've still got our number one pick in the system all the way back to 2014 at least. Um Kind of how did you feel about the, the end of the end of the Tigers era there? Because it really does feel like, you know, what we're talking about, um, the Tigers are almost a perfect symbol of, of the end of <laughs> of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah once Dave Dombrowski left, they stopped trading prospects. It's kind of funny how that works. But <laughs> uh, 
you know, it's disappointing because you're right that this team was pretty loaded for years, and obviously they had the great core, and it's still kind of hard to wrap my head around Justin Berlander not being a member of the Detroit Tigers, and it's hard to wrap my head around the idea that Miguel Cabrera could eventually not be a member of the Detroit Tigers. I know, obviously, he played with the Marlins beforehand, but he is Tiger in my mind, so... yeah. I, I find it unfortunate. I found what happened to the Giants last year unfortunate, too. Again, kind of a team in a similar situation, and instead of rebuilding, they decided to go out and acquire some more veterans, and that seems to be a team that understands that luck is a two-sided coin. You know, sometimes you're going to have good luck, sometimes you're going to have bad luck. They seemingly rightfully believe that they had bad luck last season and that things are going to improve, but Tigers, on the other hand, you're right. They didn't wait, and... I don't really know how it's going because, you know, there's certainly some interesting prospects in the system. That said, I think most publications have them as a bottom 10 system. And yep. when you look at their farm system, a lot of the top guys are pretty close to the majors, as in they'll be there either before this season is out or before the 2019 season is out. And yet I don't know if the impact is there. I don't know if they're going to get more than maybe one or two uh, what scouts call a role six player, which basically means, you know, a mid-rotation starter better or, uh, you know, on the position player side, like a first division player better. So I'm kind of interested to see what they do with the draft this year because when I look at this big league team, I mean, let's be frank, this is going to be a very, very ugly season. And in all likelihood, it's probably going to be a couple of very ugly seasons. I, just last week, I was going around quizzing um, friends about, do you know who the Detroit Tigers' second baseman is projected to be? <laughs> and none of them know. And it's not because they're not smart about baseball. We're talking about baseball writers, which, to be fair, you know, baseball writers are not always smart about baseball. But, you know, it's not because they don't follow the game. It's because I don't think anyone really knows who Dixon Machado is or expects him to be the Detroit Tigers' starting second baseman. And you look at this lineup, and there's, what, four, maybe five guys who probably deserve to start on a big league team? Maybe Maybe five. I would probably say four, and that might be generous as well. You look at the rotation, you have two guys, maybe three guys who will be probably around a replacement level. The bullpen is, I mean, you know, it's a Detroit Tigers team, so it wouldn't be the Detroit Tigers <laughs> sort of a questionable bullpen. And again, they have some prospects on the way that could be interesting, but it doesn't feel like there's enough there. And yeah, it feels like it's going to be an ugly couple of years. And you could say, well, this is the rent you pay for having such a successful stretch and to some extent that's true but i also think that the tigers are a team that's not really trying to be competitive or to be better than they could be otherwise maybe they would sign neil walker maybe they would take advantage of this free agent market and add one of these mid-rotation starters instead of relying on a guy in francisco liriano who was just absolutely horrendous last season and who you know frankly probably doesn't have that much upside anymore so i think the tigers do embody what we're talking about here a team that you know, they're content to take their bumps this year. They're content to get the number one pick again, number two pick if they're unlucky. And, you know, maybe they'll come out next winter with two number one picks under their belt, and they'll say, you know what, we're going to get some impact talent from these uh, two prospects. At least one of them will probably work out. And now we're going to start spending some more money, and we're going to go out there and acquire, you know, maybe one of the elite free agents. Or, you know, maybe they decide to wait till the winter after next. I really don't know, but... You know, it's just a situation that, yeah, it looks really bad on paper. And <laughs> yeah. the rebuild doesn't look like it's going to necessarily uh, result in a competitive team just yet. There's still a lot of pieces that need to be inserted before I think any of us can feel confident in saying that. 
Yeah, and I, you know, and I keep telling people, you know, the the rebuild may have started this year, but you know, the Tigers have have been drafting and not, you know, trading away too many of their guys for a couple of years before that, and you know, the system is still. You know, definitely, you know, bottom bottom half, if not, as you suggest, bottom third and other, you know, a lot of places have said the same. Um, you know, the Tigers have kind of taken an, I don't even know if I can call it an interesting strategy, but just kind of a contrary strategy because they've taken so many, you know, power arms at a time when it feels like a lot of teams have kind of switched over to the Cubs thinking on this that, you know, you should you should be trying to acquire your bats there. And, right. and, you know, kind of let, let pitchers prove themselves in the majors and, and sign them there. And, I mean, I can see a utility to having some inexpensive starters. Um, you know, we've still got Daniel Norris, who's only 24, um, who could take a step forward into being that mid-rotation starter as well. We've got Michael Fulmer. And if that works out, then you're spending on bats, which are a safer investment. Um, right. does, does that make any sense to you? Or <laughs> oh, Well, I understand the school, of law, the school of thought behind taking your hitters. I would say that, you know, this is supposed to be the Moneyball era of GM. And if you're looking for inefficiencies, then it's always at least something you should weigh, excuse me, then zigging while everyone else zags is yeah. something you should weigh. And you're right, the Tigers do have a type. I mean, I don't think it's any secret that they love their right-handed power arms. And the system is loaded with right-handed power arms as a result. And, yeah, I can see it both ways because, you know, when a team like the Rays uh, – was really good. We talked about how, oh, they prioritize young pitching. Then they find ways to complement that young pitching by, you know, getting good fielders or, you know, getting a couple of cheap bats who have bounce back seasons or whatever. And then conversely with the Cubs, yeah, they've succeeded without really developing any pitchers. You know, basically everyone in the rotation was either traded for or signed. And I can't even tell you the last Cubs draftee who stuck with them as a pitcher and was successful. I mean, it might be... I would have to be a reliever. I mean, it's been a while is the point. And yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, that's kind of the hot thinking right now, but I don't know that there's one strategy that necessarily works. I don't think that, you know, a team is inherently going to succeed just because they focus on bats any more than a team is going to inherently fail because they focus on arms. So I think there's merit to both, and you have to do a case-by-case analysis. And maybe the best approach is just to do a portfolio uh, approach to acquiring talent. You know, take the best guy, if there's a tie, take the one who, you know, take the side that perhaps you don't have a comparable talent to or whatever, you know? So if you take yeah. a, if you have a system loaded with pitchers and you have this pitcher and a hitter graded the same, then take the hitter. But, you know, for the most part, I don't think there's a secret formula necessarily to be unlocked that way because, you know, if the Cubs had drafted, you know, so-and-so who is a frontline starter now, we wouldn't necessarily be talking about how, you know, their strategy was genius. We'd be saying, you know what, they drafted a good player and then that's how this works out. Yeah. And there's always that, you know, that tendency to kind of retrofit, you know, the, the yeah, narrative, yeah, the narrative to whoever, whoever just won. Um, obviously everyone and their brother ran out to get all the bullpen arms possible after the, after the oh, Royals brother. won. Don't get me started on that one. Yeah. You know, can we just, you know, yeah, you, get you, me started. Go uh, ahead. You, you need arms. That's, that's it. You need arms. Yeah. You don't necessarily need relievers as the Astros showed us all last year. Um, if you, if you've got enough good pitching, it doesn't really matter in the postseason if you're creative enough to just use it. Yeah. I'm not a fan of where the pitching staff used to just go anywhere. I feel like a very old person and I'm not, but man, I'm this, I don't know. I grew up, you know, James Shields was my favorite pitcher. Please don't laugh. James Shields was my favorite <laughs> pitcher. And you know, the thing about James Shields, that was perhaps most valuable was that he was always going to give you a deep outing. Even when he didn't have his best stuff, he was able to get through the lineup two, three times, whatever. And it's hard for me to think of a league or you know, 
you know, imagine a league where 200 innings is not long, no longer a goal for a starting pitcher, a t- you know, a front of the line starting pitcher. Like I was just talking with Craig Goldstein of Baseball Perspectives last night. We were talking about Shohei Itani. And I said, you know, I don't call anyone an ace until they have a 200-inning season under their belt. And then it hit me. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's probably never going to have a 200-inning season, especially if they keep up a six-man rotation. And I'm like, you know, I don't know where to draw that line in the stand anymore. Do I go for another round number, like 180? or Yeah. And, yeah, you know, it's just it's one of those things that's hard to conceptualize at this point because I grew up, you know, I shoot, I mean, what, we're like five years removed from guys hitting – 250 innings in a season and now the idea that 200 innings in a season might go extinct sooner or later it's crazy and yeah i don't know i don't it's weird to me because you know again when i came up writing and learning about sabermetrics and all the thought was that relievers were really easy to find and that you should never pay a reliever you should never give them a multi-year deal because they're flaky and they'll burn you and nowadays you know the the uh, colorado rockies go out there and all their big off-season deals were with relievers, <laughs> and people were going crazy, like, wow, super bullpen. And again, in my head, it kind of goes back to the luck thing. I'm thinking, okay, so if relying on two or three pitchers in a given game is considered risky because of the third time through the order effect, isn't you know trying to rely on four, five, six pitchers in a game almost as risky because – Odds are one of those guys is going to be working, you know, his second, third night in a row. He's not going to have his best stuff for command. And, you know, you might run into trouble that way. Plus, you talk about the burnout factor. And, you know, we're dealing with Cole Hamels. He's been very vocal against the yeah. Angels going to a six-man rotation. There's just a lot that goes into this. And I understand the Angels doing it because of Otani. You know, he's their most valuable pitching asset. Why wouldn't you try to protect him? You've had a lot of pitching injuries. So, sure, it makes sense to maybe – try something different and hope that everyone stays healthy. But yeah, I don't know. It's, um, you and I, you and I seen this, see this very similarly. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I did, I did the other, the same thing actually the other day where I was, I, I was saying, you know, if he can, you know, if he's, you know, Michael former has got to get to the point where he's pitching 200 innings consistently before I can even think about whether or not he's an ace. And yeah, I thought the same thing, you know, like, I don't know if he's going to get there ever. Yeah. And, um, by you know, design, by yeah. design is the thing. Yeah. Like, you know, some guys don't get there because, what well, used to be, they didn't get there because they were always hurt or they weren't good enough. Now your staff ace can conceivably lead your entire, uh, you know, rotation in innings, and he might only hit 180 by design. That's it's a different world. I feel like a dinosaur. I really do because this is not the baseball I grew up grew up on, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It could be proven that it, you know, it keeps pitchers healthier or whatever. Yeah. Okay, I'll adjust, but you know, I don't know that that's uh, a given either because. Again, you know, we see relievers get hurt. We see all kinds of different arms get hurt. So there's no guarantees at all when it comes to pitchers and health. And yeah, yeah they, I don't know. Yeah, they haven't figured it out yet. You know, that, that I don't think anyone can make that case. You know, it seems like yeah. every year or two, some random doctor, you know, has got it all figured out. You see some article, you know, it's it's it's, it's just something that passes by. No one takes it seriously anymore. But yeah. um, it kind of goes back to, you know, I was taught, you know, obviously I, Justin Verlander is my favorite player, which um, from a guy who was 10 when the Tigers won the world series in 84 <laughs> is saying something about Justin Verlander. Like that's, Absolutely. that's, that's my guy. And, um, you know, people were kind of arguing like, you know, he still needs one more Cy Young, you know, to make it to the hall of fame. And I just thought, you know, if Justin Verlander isn't a hall of famer already, whoever is going to be again beyond Clayton Kershaw and, you know, maybe Max Scherzer, like, you know, the, the standards are for all these things are going to have to change radically. Um, yeah. I mean, Justin Verlander, by my, you know, by my sights, is you know the best pitcher other than Clayton Kershaw over the past decade, and should get in 
no problem. But um, we're not going to see people that you can compare to in the same way. You know, there, we had prominent baseball writers talking about Zach Britton um, in 2016 as a Cy you know, and yeah. these are people I respect. And it was just baffling to me that they would even, cons- you know, consider a guy who might be worth, you know, two and a half war as the potential Cy Young winner. You know, it's just... Right. And I, I think you can make the case that, you know, maybe um, war underrates relievers. But I yeah. agree with you, Verlander. I'm actually surprised there's any uh, pushback there. I, now, I'm not looking at the numbers, so, you know, maybe I'm overrating him in my head, which it's very possible. But, you know, it's not just that he has had all this success and all, but I think there's also a symbolic aspect to Verlander because I think back to last postseason, and I think that he's like the last gunslinger in the West, right? Who else could have got away with what he got away with in terms of, you know, demanding to go back out there and all that stuff? And the thing about Verlander is obviously he is just – incredibly gifted physically but he's also really driven you can tell that with his conditioning and you can also see with how he deploys analytics i mean you know he was open-minded when he went to houston and he was open-minded in detroit apparently uh for that tom verducci article and you know what just last week he tweeted a graph including exit velocity and launch angle about the home runs and you know the juice balls and on i don't know he just seems like the complete package everything you could possibly want in a pitcher and i certainly I would give him a Hall of Fame vote. I don't ever intend to vote for the Hall of Fame because that seems very stressful and not at all worth. I mean, you know, I guess it's cool to say I voted for so and so, but for me, I don't know if the um, stress and the annoyance factor is worth the the brag there. But yeah, and getting yeah, ye- getting yelled at, getting yelled at by everyone. Yeah, oh, I get yelled at anyway. Yeah, uh, I, get, I got yelled at for saying Neil Walker should get more than a minor league deal. So I can say the sky is blue and someone's going to be like, actually, you know what the sky really is. And you know, it's part of the gig and it's fine. But yeah, I wouldn't, I'm surprised. Like are these tiger fans here against Verlander being in the hall of fame? Or are these just general baseball fans or I'm curious now? Yeah. I mean, I've heard it. um, I've heard it from, uh, you know, I can't remember who, but I've heard it from guys on MLB radio. Um, I've seen, you know, national writers, you know, when, when we're having this discussion on Twitter, kind of still, you know, hemming and hawing a little bit, like, you know, whether or not he gets in. And I'm not talking about guys who are, you know, who are looking at his win total or any nonsense like right, that, right. you know. But, you know, he's at, I think he's at 57 F war at the moment, you know. He's at 57 um, B war too. So let's yeah. see what Jaws says about this. Yeah. You know, this, is qual- this is quality listening, folks. When exactly. You can, you can actually hear my keys uh, pressing down to get far down, get as far down on his B-ref page as I need to in a hurry. <laughs> This is what we call filling dead air. I still, um, I still can't negotiate B ref um, with it, with any you know real faculty compared to Fangraph. So yeah, you you go ahead and check that right, out. So, okay, wow. Okay, he's actually about 17 wins short of the average Hall of Fame pitcher, yeah. and his peak is okay. You know what? He's actually a fair amount away from what I expected. That said, he does have uh, more than enough black ink, and he has pretty close to. Uh, the amount of gray ink that you would see from average Hall of Famer. And my guess is that he's going to get in because, you know, even though he doesn't have, he's not going to get 300 wins in all likelihood. He's going to get over 200. He's going to have the big moments. He's going to have, uh, what, probably, I think at least six all-star appearances, at least one Cy Young, at least uh, one ALCS MVP and ERA title MVP and you know you keep going I, I just can't imagine a scenario where he does not get in once he's said and done who knows what he's going to do the rest of his career I mean yeah uh, the guy looked last year he's 35 but he's a freak who knows he might have another two or three years it's like Max Scherzer like you know when Max Scherzer signed that free agent deal 
everyone thought that it was going to be a disaster by this point, or if not a disaster, at least they were going to be, you know, just content with the deal. He has been phenomenal for them. And yeah, Yeah. who knows? Um, Maybe Verlander's one of those guys who he'll be 42 and still be able to go out there and give you 150 plus league average innings. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't get in. Yeah, I just, I just think you have to kind of compare him to his contemporaries, and there just isn't really anybody but Kershaw who's gonna, who's gonna be able to, you know, kind of compare in numbers, you know, and, and uh, you know, and obviously be ahead of him in numbers. But yeah, you know, he's, he's probably gonna get close to three thousand strikeouts. And the thing I look at, you know, there's, you were talking about injuries um, and kind of the expectation for injury for older players now, but it seems like with with Verlander, there's sort of a point where you stop worrying about it. I mean, this is a person yeah. who's never had an arm injury and threw a hundred, you know, in the ninth inning, you know, at 120 pitches for years. Um, there just, you know, there isn't really a scale for him. And then, yeah, you kind of look at the swag factor um, just, <laughs> just yes. in general, not just the cars yes. and the wife and everything, but it's just like, you know, the guy is the man. So, yeah, yeah I like think I he's, said, you know, he's got a ways. How many pitchers can do what he did, you know, demanding the ball, basically. And I remember... This is not necessary. I'm not condoning this, but I feel like one of my most memorable Justin Verlander moments was probably 2008, 2009. He had a perfect game or no hitter going against the Angels, and Eric Ivar wanted to break it up. And when Ivar reached second, I believe it was on a throwing error or something. No, I don't know. I think Verlander made a mistake, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, the cameras were focused on Verlander, and he looked at Ivar, took his thumb, and pushed it up against his back. Like, hey, next time I see you, you're getting a ball in the back. And maybe I'm... Um, Maybe I misread that signal or whatever, but I was like, you know what, Justin Verlander, I fully believe that he is that kind of pitcher who, you know, the old school mentality and whatnot. But again, he's, you're right, he's an absolute freak, and he's basically everything you could possibly want in a starting pitcher. So credit to him for, you know, whatever he's done, obviously, has worked very well. I don't know if it would work very well for everyone else, but, you know, this is that one in a hundred, one in a million shot where everything has just worked perfectly for him. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, yeah, and I, I could, you know, very easily see, I mean, the guy still has three plus pitches, even when his fastball finally, you know, comes back to average velocity. So you never know, we might see him go until he's 40, 41. We're, I'm just kind of prepping our audience because you know, when, <laughs> when 2020 comes, we are going to be pushing hard to resign Justin Brilliant. <laughs> I promise he's got to end his career here. That's just the way it is. Um, I thought you were going to tie that into Ichiro real quick. I, I was about to go there. Mark. Yep. There you go. Yep, yep, there it is. Professional Ichi- here. <laughs> yep, exactly. We've got to get Ichiro back to the Mariners. Actually, um, <laughs> Ashley, who uh, who's my co-host, writes for um, D-Rays Bay as well um, and is an editor there. So she's uh, she's followed in your footsteps there. But, yeah, she's she's been pushing the Ichiro to the Mariners train for a couple weeks, so she'll be happy as well. I thought you were going to ask me about the Rays next. And I, was, I, was, I felt my pulse quicken. Because, I, oh man. <laughs> I know, the Rays have been, uh, the Rays are always interesting, but uh, yeah, the Rays have oh. had a very interesting offseason. That's that's one way of putting it, yeah. We'll go yeah. with interesting. Do you really think, um, I mean, they're definitely worse than they were, you know, a couple weeks ago, but do you think they're um, they're completely out of, I mean, is this a tank or is this them just kind of like doing Rays things and, you know, juggling money, all that kind of thing, more than anything? I mean, more, I don't, I don't think, think I can label it a tank because, as stupid as it sounds, I guess I would say I don't think they have a real direction in mind because, you know, you basically gave away Corey Dickerson and Jake Odorizzi. You then go out and, you know, trade Steven Souza, but then you sign Carlos Gomez and, you know, you take Daniel Hudson back as uh, one of the pieces in return <laughs> for Dickerson. And, you know, the guys they got in return for Souza are fairly close to being big league ready. Anyway, what my point is, if they were tanking, I feel like Colomay would be gone. I feel like 
Kiermaier, honestly, you know, you can make a case that they should trade Kiermaier anyway, but yeah, uh, that's that's for another day. But um, you know, Our, Archer, he'd be gone. There's no reason to keep any of your valuable assets like that, really, if you're going into a tank. So I think they're sort of doing the wishy-washy thing where they're not really committing to winning because otherwise, why is Neil Walker sitting out there and not replacing the Joey Wendell, Daniel Robertson platoon? You have planned at second base, but they're also not pulling the plug completely. And, you know, the thing <laughs> is, like, I was gonna, I was giving them credit at the deadline for what they did, you know, getting Lucas Duda and getting some relievers. It was all very smart. And I was like, there we go. And now this offseason... Yeah, uh, there was that, that what week span there really kind of turned the whole thing. I will say, though, you know, trading Tim Beckham, that was a head-scratcher for me, and I'm very glad that Tim Beckham has had success elsewhere, and seems like he's going to get a chance to be an everyday player for the Orioles at third base this year, so I'm hopeful that he does well. Yeah, and I am I am optimistic for you guys that uh, Willie Adamas will turn out to uh, to be something, something good. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure yeah. quite how much power he's going to be able to muster, but he should be a pretty good shortstop for you guys for years to come, however long yeah. they keep him. And the thing about their farm system is, you know, everybody focuses on being ranked top five by a lot of publications, but, you know, realistically, there's not necessarily an impact caliber player. I, when we talked about the Tigers earlier, I said, I don't know how many Rule 6 players they're going to get. Well, with the Rays, you know, they have a ton of system depth. There's a lot of Rule 5, a lot of Rule 45 players you know, it's possible that Ademus and Honeywell are the only Rule 6-plus players to come out of the system for, you know, the next three to five years or whatever. Uh, maybe Garrett Whitley breaks out, you know, maybe Lucius yeah. Fox, blah, 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 you know, who knows. But, yeah, I think that's something that kind of gets overlooked. We, we kind of treat every farm system the same way. But some farm systems are loaded with depth, like the San Diego Padres a few years ago, I believe. Uh, at least Kate, excuse me, at least Keith Law, and I think BP might have had them as the top farm system and I'm not naming them to shame them I'm just saying you know that was a system that was built on depth and you know there wasn't necessarily a star to come out of there whereas you know some systems are built around one star player and it works out better than you know the the uh, comparable system so you know you have to judge every farm system on its own merits while also comparing them and it's a tough job and again I don't envy envy having to do that job with you know it's tough enough analyzing big league players because sometimes you get a jd martinez situation which (laughs) basically everybody whipped on so yeah i don't know i'm not i'm not downing the race farm system but i will say that i have some concerns about the expectations being placed on guys like demas and honeywell and jake bowers and you go right on down the list it seems like they're being uh, portrayed as saviors and all of them can be solid and good players but you know there's not necessarily a mike trout waiting behind the emergency glass or even, you know, a guy who's going to consistently be uh, an all-star what have you. So, yeah, I don't really know what the plan is there for them. I guess uh, wait till the kids get there and then hopefully, you know, you have some interesting developments the way we talked about with the Astros. You know, maybe somebody takes that step that wasn't expected to take that step and maybe that person's already in the race rotation. Maybe it's, you know, Faria. Maybe he's the new James Shields or Alex Cobb or I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's just going to be an interesting situation. And, of course, you know, who knows? Um, it could all go bad, too. And those guys could underperform and they could have, you know, um, they could enter their own tank. Cycle, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, tie it all together there. Yeah. And, I mean, and even even if things go, you know, just say reasonably well, it still feels like the, the clock has been pushed back, you know, yeah, two or three seasons at least before you know, before you can really realistically expect to even know for sure kind of what those guys are. So, um, and obviously yeah. Brett Honeywell going down was, was awful to all pitch geeks like myself. That was, that was a bummer. 
Yeah, I don't even know how long he's going to be in Tampa Bay is a thing because, you know, I love Honeywell, to be clear, but, you know, it's probably not a great sign when you're kind of publicly clashing with the ace who is, like, <laughs> beloved and whatnot. And I don't know, I could see, I mean, the race shaded Will Myers for, in part, because of, you know, quote-unquote, you know, personality differences or personality quirks, whatever you want to say. And, you know, Will Myers was not out there challenging Evan Longoria or whomever in the press to pitch like an ace or, you know, hit like a superstar. And so, yeah, I do wonder about that. But uh, that's not disrespect to Honeywell. It's just more of a comment on how the Rays seem to um, not necessarily handle, you know, different personalities as well as uh, other teams, or at least not are not willing to tolerate different personalities as well as some other organizations are. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, I am excited to hopefully see Honeywell get back because uh, you're right. He is, you know, one of the top pitching prospects in baseball. He's a funny guy, it seems like, a very self-confident guy. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if he possibly becomes the best player from this farm system because, you know, yeah, confidence is a big part of it. I mean, we talked about the swag of Verlander. And, you know, Honeywell seems to have that kind of front of rotation swag. He obviously has uh, – stuff and uh, the acumen and we'll see yep definitely um yeah and yeah I, it's just one of those things where I, I don't mean to be smarmy but i also wonder like if if just the rays being the fact that they're the rays kind of kind mm-hmm. of is just tough for, you know it's just tough for some people to deal with you know you're you know you know you're kind of playing in a park that isn't isn't one of the nicer ones to put it let's just say it's a bad yeah, park. Like, it's, it's a it's a bad park and yeah. it's a bad it's just a bad ownership um you know you can you can spin it however you want to, but you know they don't spend any money. Um, I know he's trying to build the the stadium, and maybe that will will turn things around. Um, and they just mm. got their billion dollar TV deal, you know. So they're they're in desperate straits financially, obviously. But um, but yeah, but if uh, yeah. I was a raised player, I'd be frustrated, you know. I'd be like, hey, oh. trade me. Uh, yeah, and the thing is, like, you're kind of seeing two camps. Uh, there's a camp that's like you know, pointing out these things, like, you know, they got 50 million in revenue sharing last year. They got 50 million from the BAM tech cell. They're about to sign a billion dollar TV deal, which is going to, you know, give them like 80 million a year. And, you know, then you point to their payroll and you point to these recent moves with Dickerson and Odorizzi and even Longoria. I mean, that deal, that was was mostly a salary dump. Let's not, and they didn't even save that much money is the insulting thing. It's not like they got the Giants to take the whole deal. They took back Denard Stan. He's the highest played play, excuse me, he's the highest paid player on the team now. And <laughs> you know, the only reason he's still there is because they couldn't find a taker. I mean, if they could dump his contract, they would have dumped his contract. But you also have the camp who says, Well, why would you spin now? And hey, you know, their payroll has went up three million from last <laughs> opening day. And you and know, I, I understand I understand looking for stuff to root for and reasons to be optimistic and all, but I think if you're you know, if we're being honest here. Three million is trifling, especially in an industry again is worth ten billion, and especially given the circumstances I mentioned earlier with their finances, I think you know three yeah. uh, three million is nothing, and it's insulting, frankly. Yeah, and I mean that. I mean, we could just go on and on, but yeah, you throw in the revenue yeah. sharing money. You know, they're they're not actually spending hardly any money on their their team. Um, at least yeah. you know, at least for the Tigers, like our payroll is going to be down to one ten this year, and they're you know, and yeah, obviously we look terrible, and there are free agents that could probably help this team, but I'm I think in general, once once we kind of went through what we went through last year, everybody kind of accepted like okay, for one year, um, you know, this the Illich family spent you know two hundred million the past couple of seasons each. Um, if they want to take a year off and you know, get and tank it a little bit, try to get back to back number one picks, we'll probably survive. This is the story. Right, and uh, you know, the last thing on the raise is 
they have either the largest baseball operations staff or <laughs> one of the largest baseball operations staffs in the entire sport. And if this is the best they can come up with, I would say maybe they're not being efficient enough with their, you know, their office personnel uh, because, you know, they're so focused on being efficient with their roster. Maybe they can, you know, stand to get rid of some of these analysts if this is the best they can come up with because, you know, I guess I, I guess I just expect more pride and more creativity based on what, you know, Andrew Friedman did down here. And now this group is just, they've not shown either of those things. And it's disappointing. And, you know, I say this as someone who kind of lost his fandom when James Shields was traded. And again, <laughs> please do not laugh at that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you know, you lose your favorite player and you see how it's going to be. And I used to say that as long as the Rays had uh, Friedman, Madden, and Longoria, they had a chance. Well, they have none of the three. And I don't think they really have... Uh, much of a chance of you know winning the World Series anytime soon, and you know maybe they. That's a stu- this is the stupidest thing to me because there is a chance they're gonna make the playoffs this year. I mean, you know, Dakota has them at 84 wins. If you believe that, and I think that's high, but if you believe that, you know there are a couple of breaks away from getting into the wild card game, sort of like the Twins did last season. You know, so it's entirely possible this team makes the postseason, but boy, they do not deserve it based on some of their moves this winter, and you know. They don't deserve it for missing the opportunity to, again, add a guy like Neil Walker or, uh, you know, Jonathan Luke or whomever you want to throw out there. I'm not just you know, going to keep pushing the Walker idea because I know that's not going to happen. But, yeah, it's a disappointing situation. And I definitely think that I have more sympathy for the Tigers situation, even though, again, I would like to see them sign a Walker or sign someone who's a little bit better than Liriano or Fires. But I can at least understand that because, like you said, they, they were spending – for years it seemed like the Tigers would be – the team that pounced on the last remaining free agent or whatever as a means of improving the roster. And the Nationals are also a team who's done that. But, yeah, the Rays, um, I guess I said this earlier in the winter, too. It's kind of funny that this is the winter that the Rays and Pirates both chose to kind of rebuild and uh, reset because this would have been the winter where they could have both taken advantage of a slow free agent market and added a bunch of wins to the roster that prior years they wouldn't have been able to afford. So it's funny how that worked out, I guess. Yeah, it is kind of odd. I mean, honestly, you know, even the Tigers, you know, if they had just decided, all right, we're not going to trade, you know, Justin Verlander, but we'll trade these other guys. We'll sign J.D. Martinez back or whatever and, and give another crack at it and hope some of these young pitchers come along. Um, you know, yeah. you could have taken a world that way. Um, you know, for me, I, like, I would have been happy if the Tigers would just do, you know, reasonably smart things like picking up Corey Dickerson with their <laughs> number one waiver wire priority. But, you know. It yeah. is what it is. We've got Victor Reyes out there and Leonis Martin. You know, we've got to got to give these youngsters a try, a try, see what they can do out there. Hey, Victor Reyes has big feet, so <clears throat> that's the, what the I hear. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure Gardy's looking at him and just thinking, you know, like, ah, oh, there's there's my next lead, leadoff hitter after Leonis Martin is done. Um, see, Garden <laughs> higher, higher. I don't think I really understand that one because I would have expected them to go not necessarily young, but I, I don't know. I guess I'm shocked that Garden higher was the guy they is settled on. And I don't have any special insight into that. I'm just surprised that I was not expecting him to be the one they uh, went with. But, you know, good for him. He seems like a nice guy. You know, he seems like a likable guy. And I know he had the cancer scare, so. He is very likable. Um, you know, yeah. I think we're all happy. You know, Brad Osmus is ca- a bit of a taciturn, sarcastic individual who doesn't doesn't necessarily have great quotes. Um, Gardy has great quotes. Um, I don't know what else he really brings to the table. And that, that kind of goes to the final topic that I wanted to really get into a little bit was, um, was just, you know, kind of the, the analytics revolution and where it's at right, right now. And the fact that, 
you know, the Tigers, um, you know, I, I don't think it's it's going too far to say that may, they might be the most backwards operation in, in the game at this point or very close to it. Um, they just got their first Rap Soto unit, which is very exciting to me. And right. uh, they got TrackMan finally installed in the minor leagues last year. And they finally have their proprietary database done a couple years after um, setting out work on that. So how far behind are the Tigers, do you think? And how much is it, does it matter right now because they're so bad anyway? So I don't necessarily know their specifics. Um, you know, a lot of my work is kind of done with league-wide trends, and I don't necessarily get into individual teams. I will say, you know, the Tigers have employed some individuals who are well-regarded. Uh, you know, Jay Satori, mm-hmm. was, he's still credited for helping in Washington, D.C., and with Toronto. And, you know, uh, I know for a time there, I believe they had Chris Long, who people might know from Twitter as a consultant. I could be wrong about that. but No, you're you know, right. That's yep. names. And I, they also had uh, Andrew Koo, I believe. Wait, maybe not. I don't know. I know they had someone else who had came from the writing circle up there. Uh, I think it was Koo, but I could be mistaken on that. But anyway, the point is, you know, they've had some – uh, analytically minded people up there. I so I can't really speak to their operations or anything like that. I will say that there's a couple of different school of thoughts on this. I know I've said that a few times, but I I did a piece last year on where teams are getting their data from. You know mm-hmm. the uh, surprising surprising hosts of uh, excuse me, surprising sources of data. And Vince Gennaro, who is the president of Saber and blah blah blah. You know he's on MLB Network and whatnot. You probably seen his name if you pay attention to. MLB at all. Yeah, he said something that I was not expecting him to say, and that was that there is more room for a competitive advantage using analytics today than there was during the Moneyball days. And I think the commonly accepted, one of the commonly accepted ex- explanations for this winner is that teams are valuing players the same, and maybe they are, but it's probably through shady means. Because what Gennaro says that. If you think back to when the A's and the Indians were the only teams really doing this, uh, maybe the Cardinals as well, you know, there was a small group of teams. If you think back to then, every team had basically the same inputs, you know, box score stats. You weren't necessarily looking at anything more than what was on a piece of paper or on a spreadsheet. Nowadays, a lot of the analysis is being done on literally the third dimension. You know, mm-hmm. we went from two to the second dimension to the third dimension here, and there's a whole lot more inputs. That means there's a lot more room for different outputs. And because of that, there's a lot more room for competitive advantages. And in that piece, I talked to um, someone who works for one of the data providers. And he told me that, you know, some of these teams call him and they're like, hey, don't offer this because we don't want you guys doing the data analysis for these teams who are behind. You know, for instance, uh, catcher pop times. Now, you know, everyone knows about catcher pop times now, but. You know, if you take if you take that away from a team who realizes that's a big deal, and you give it to everyone, well, then you kind of even the playing field a little bit. But with a lot of this new information, no one is there to even the playing field. So you have to a care about this stuff, b have the right uh, right people with the right skill sets to make any sense of it whatsoever, and also you have to trust those people, the conclusions, and the data. So. You know, you kind of have to have a perfect storm to really maximize the information that's out there. And I also say, you know, this stuff is still relatively new. There's still measurement errors and whatnot to be discovered. There's still a lot of room for error. So I guess to answer your question in a very long, long rant, <laughs> I would say that while I can't speak to where the Tigers are, although based on the information you said there, it does seem like they are behind the curve. I do think that there 
is a lot of significance and trying to compete while being that far behind the curve because yeah i think there's a, just a huge way uh, excuse me a huge uh, difference between where they are and probably where the league average team is whereas you know maybe 10 years ago that gap was pretty small so yeah i think they're behind the eight ball if they are as far behind as they seem and i don't know how much it's affecting them right now but i will say you know uh, again, you look at this roster, and there's not even a ton of guys who are intriguing as non-roster invitees or whatever. You know, some of these other teams are chasing the spin rate guys, or chasing, you know, whatever. And those guys are at least intriguing. You can really squint and see why they might be interested in these guys. Whereas you look at the Tigers, and this would seem like the perfect time to go after some upside plays. And instead, they're worried about, you know, Francisco Liriano and Derek Norris, who should probably not even have a job in baseball. And yeah, now. You know, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe one of these guys has something secret, and I just don't know it. But, you know, Pete Cosma, and I can keep naming names, but these guys are not inspiring. Alexei and Marista, you know, again, these guys are they're boring. There doesn't seem to be much upside, what have you. So if we judge teams and their creativity and their intelligence, at least based a little bit on who they invite to camp and who they take chances on when they have opportunities available, then I would say that the Tigers do seem to be um, – in a bad position because yeah, this is an uninspiring group. And I don't know, it, it kind of goes yeah. back to what we talked about earlier with the Cubs. Well, you know, the Cubs took chances on some of these guys and you know, they took a chance on Jake Arrieta and they took a chance on some other guys who failed, but they took chances and you could see why they were taking chances here. You know, who are the Tigers taking a chance on and why are they taking a chance on them? And it's hard for me to answer that. You probably have better insight into that because yeah, it does seem like they're. Yeah. Right and it's disappointing. It is. Well, and it, yeah, and it kind of goes to, um, you know, I mean, I don't know that Ron Gardenhire's impact here is going, is going to matter all that much, but just as a matter of, um, of kind of appearances, you know, it, it didn't exactly, you know, put a lot of confidence in the minds of fans who've kind of, kind of been waiting for the Tigers to sort of catch up in some of these regards. Um, you know, obviously Ron Gardenhire is kind of an old school guy. I know he worked with, um, Tori Lavillo in Arizona last year and probably, Probably learned some things, but um, you know we're we're yeah. watching him. We're watching him run out. You know, a guy with a two ninety nine career OBP as the leadoff hitter because he's fast, and you know we're we're feeling the the old school vibe there. You know, pretty substantially. Like the only guy I even noticed, you know, that really stood out to me. Um, you know, as far as like a you know a guy that you would pick up because of a weird pitch or spin rate or something like that was um, Johnny Barbato, who's kind, oh, of, yeah. kind of bounced around for a while and just has an extremely low kind of Zach Britton type you know, sinker, um, doesn't throw as hard or from the left side, but, you know, throws hard, you know, with a spin rate of like 1700 RPMs on it or something and the bottom falls out of it. So that was, right. you know, I'm digging hard looking for these things. And that was one that was encouraging, but yeah, overall, um, you know, you, you pick up Francisco Liriano and Mike Fears, and it feels very much like you're, you're just kind of taking some old guys who, um, you know, are familiar with the coaching staff more than anything. Right. And that uh, might not be a bad play. I mean, yeah. You know, New manager, maybe it helps to have a few good generals in the clubhouse. But I, I almost want to say the Leonis Martin batting leadoff thing. And, you know, I'm a fan of Leonis Martin. I thought that he was a pretty savvy pickup by the Mariners a few years back and obviously uh, didn't really work out. But I would almost say that if you are trying to lose ball games, one of the subtle ways you can do that is batting, you know, batting a guy like Leonis Martin <laughs> leadoff. And also – running out Mike Fires, uh, Fares and uh, Francisco Liriano in your rotation for, you know, 50 combined starts or what have you, and also having that bullpen. I mean, what's the surest way to underperform your uh, run differential? It's probably having a bad bullpen that's going to blow 
games in high leverage situations. So there are a lot of kind of subtle tanking maneuvers here. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And the other guy who interested me, who they gave a, minor, a major league deal to, excuse me, was Ryan Carpenter because I'm familiar with Carpenter. And I was, I don't know, I was surprised that he got a major league deal. And uh, I don't know, I'm interested in that one. I want to see if they act, how often they actually start him, if they do start him in the majors and what he looks like. So I guess that's, that's yeah. the other uh, non, excuse me, not, non-roster guy. They ever pick up this season who uh, maybe there's something there. Or maybe it's not. Maybe they just figured, you know what, we're going to need an extra arm. Let's get this dude and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's... Uh, At least he was kind of a Cato. You know, he's a Cato darling and stuff. So, you know, there's, heard, there's something there behind that. There are out there that basically just use Cato to run this stuff. And, you know, the team we talked about earlier is one of those teams. Because if you look at their additions, um, a lot of them show up on the Cato leaderboards. And, of course, you know, that's not necessarily a... Um, how do we put this? A foolproof way of finding gems either. You know, again, this, a lot of this stuff, you know, it, it depends on luck. It depends on circumstances that are beyond um, how you evaluate the players. So, yeah, you're trying to collect some guys and, and hope yeah. something sticks. And, you know, the Tigers were obviously on the Cato the train because they took uh, Kevin Comer, uh, Mark Montgomery, all three, he, all three of those guys, including Carpenter, were, were really highly ranked on Cato this year. So, you know, they're paying attention to that at least. Um, there, there's potentially something there. But what it really comes down to with the Tigers, right, is um, – and as, and as far as Leonese Martin goes, that he does all that for you. He hurts you offensively, but he also helps you defensively. So perhaps yeah. he increases the value of some of your pitchers, maybe helps out a Daniel Norris or a Matt Boyd to look a little better than they are. Um, yeah. So, so it, I guess it does make sense all around on that on that score. No, that's a that's a good point, and you know, and mobile. What if you're you tanking do? and your best trade ship is Michael Fulmer? <laughs> maybe you're, I don't know. Maybe we're just trying to play chess here when they're just playing checkers. Yeah. You know, sometimes we overthink these things, and that's certainly been true uh, of me before. So I don't know. It's going to be a long season in Detroit, unfortunately. And uh, I guess the bright side is, you know, you're probably going to get to see Franklin Perez pitch at some point, and you're probably going to get to hear people talk about how Daniel Norris lived as in a lived or lives in his van. That's a new story, right? I don't think anyone's covered that ground before, so. Yeah, if I, uh, I'd heard something vague about that, but yeah, that was off, so. Well, kind of secret. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I mean, what it really comes down to this year for us is it's really the draft pick, and yeah, just yeah. hoping we can get what we what we want to get from, say, Shane Green. Um, yeah, hopefully some of, the, some of the pitchers progress, like Norris and Boyd, and then you hope Michael Fulmer can stay healthy, and beyond that, there isn't a whole lot, except for one Nicholas Castellanos, who <laughs> is the favorite every year of StatCast, you know, ex-WOBA and, you know, right. barrel leaderboards and this sort of thing, and hasn't quite cashed in. Um, have you ever, have you seen anything about Mr. Castellanos and why perhaps he hasn't, uh, hasn't quite lived up to some of those projections? No, um, you know, the truth is I don't really look at those numbers as often as maybe I should. I... So I, I don't think I'm qualified to really speak on that aspect. But, you know, I did like... Uh, I did like him as a hitter, and obviously, you know, the knock on him nowadays is his defense, and I don't know quite where you play him, but I think he might actually be one of the next Tigers to go to, because I think there were rumors that they were trying to sign him to an extension at some point, and then suddenly that kind of disappeared, and I think it makes a lot of sense to potentially shop him around, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the I don't know about the ex-Woba numbers. I think that, you know, Mike Patriello or someone like that would probably be a better person to ask on that. So I'd have to look into that. I don't want to give you a, a fluff no. answer just to give you a fluff answer. 
No, you're good. I mean, and I and I, honestly, I've kind of already kind of delved into it pretty substantially and stuff. And it seems like, you know, if you're looking for a guy to bet on having a good year, Nick Castellanos is a, a reasonably good guy at age 25 to uh, suddenly hit 35 home runs and break out a little bit. Uh, but, you know, you gotta get, yeah, hopefully, you know, he doesn't lose his triples. I mean, he has, you know, elite speed and whatnot, right? So <laughs> yeah. hopefully he maintains that. I don't want him to bulk up too much. Yeah, Leonis Martin's going to have to yeah. run real fast yeah. to kind of take over there. Take over yeah. from him. Poor Leonis. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's funny to me about baseball right at the moment is that I was a mixed martial arts fan for a really long time, like the last, like, 12 years. And there's no sport where people, you know, are trying more sort of crazy methodologies to, like, get healthier, to get stronger, to have more energy. And it kind of feels like we're, we're sort of on the brink of, of a revolution in that regard. You know, there's more guys, like, um, you know, using these, you know, using cupping um, right. There's the the cryo tubes to to cool you know to lower your body temperature after a workout. We're seeing more of that. We and we actually saw I believe it was the Mariners this this off season kind of talking about how they wanted to their players to stay rested this spring and not actually come into camp like and try to you know work their way into a job. Right. Um, do you think that's you know some of those kind of elements like you know things as far as like nutrition? Those are kind of the way teams are starting to kind of expand their their thoughts as to what the cutting edge is. Yeah. I mean, the giants experimented with these headphones that helped. Uh, well, I don't know if they helped. I honestly don't <laughs> know the science there, but they were supposed to help with your brain waves and your uh, muscle memory and stuff like that. And again, I have no idea if it worked oh, sure, based yeah. on the record last year. It did not. Um, if you want to blame it on that, but <laughs> no, I think teams are always going to look for that advantage. And I think it's been a well-publicized thought that, health and nutrition and all that good stuff is one of the untapped areas because it's hard to put a number on it. So um, something interesting that Joe Madden said though, when he left Tampa Bay was that they were at the point where they could put a number on how a player um, basically, you know, how he felt that day. And you see teams like the pirates, they experiment with some of the new technology, uh, you know, the arm radar, stuff like that. And one of the, you know, we talked about earlier the analytical stuff. Well, you know, the top teams right now, like the Cubs and the Rays, and I think one or two others are investing in this thing called Kima Tracks, and it's slow, uh, slow motion, high definition cameras that help uh, analyze pitcher mechanics with the hopes of, you know, improving your injury prevention, your injury recognition, and stuff. So, you're certainly seeing the game shift a little bit towards the health aspect and the nutrition aspect, and you know, you're seeing teams push back their meetings and their workouts this, throughout the spring. You're seeing teams cancel batting practice during the season because they do want their players to get more rest. And there's been a lot of studies on, you know, sleep and how you should um, how you should approach going on a West Coast swing if you're an East Coast team or vice versa. And I believe it was the Miami Heat, Golden State Warriors, maybe Cleveland Cavaliers who had their players put a number on how they felt every day they came in. And obviously, you know, that's kind of a rudimentary way of doing it. But Using that, they were able to build models on who should get rest and who should, you know, continue to play and all. So I think you're going to continue to see that be uh, a couple of areas where teams do invest and do try to find those breakthroughs. And that seems like something that, you know, frankly, the public is never going to be as good about as the private sector, so to speak. You know, maybe we can get there or get close to it with some of our metrics uh, using when it comes to like player evaluation, I mean, but oh, yeah. when it comes to health and conditioning and all that, we're never going to be able to touch them. So a lot of their breakthroughs, a lot of their, um, 
secrets and whatnot are going to remain just that until the players themselves or whomever comes out and talks about it. So it's kind of going to be a black box, I, I suppose. But I do think, you know, even with not knowing a ton about what teams are doing, I do think that that's probably the area they're most focused on these days. Yeah, it really seems to me like fatigue is one of the least sort of appreciated elements of a of a player's you know season. Um, you know, it's it, it's pretty grueling out there, especially guys who are catchers and such. And um, you know, everybody is is primed to have that you know run through a wall, never say you're tired, never say you're hurt kind of attitude. And yeah, it definitely seems like it would be smart for teams to kind of to try to at least push back against that a little bit and and get these guys to be a little bit more open about you know how they're actually doing and, and feeling. Absolutely. I mean, you're going to be exhausted watching this Tigers team for a couple of series, you know, after a couple of series, excuse me. So imagine the players are actually you know, having to deal with the travel, the late nights, the, I mean, <laughs> the loneliness even, because, you know, you're yeah. being away from your family for long stretches and yeah, I mean. Oh, come yeah, on. It's, it's come a on, RJ. Time. These guys make millions of dollars. I don't want to hear it. Sam Miller just wrote the piece for ESPN <laughs> where he's like, you know, would you play in the majors? And he had asked me about it and I said, you would get me for one game maybe one series at most because I hate traveling. You know, I can't do the travel like that. I need a, I need a, a base, so to speak. I couldn't do six months of the year, never really being home for more than what a week at a time. If you're lucky. So oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't do that stuff. And I respect anyone who can do that and function because yes. yeah, it's just not for me. So I very, very, very respectful of what players go through on that stuff. That's uh, a pretty tough life for my, yeah. My shout, shout out to all the scouts out there as well because oh geez oh and that's again, a brutal game all people are taking advantage of the scouts work as hard as any people in any front office in any team and they get horrible lifestyles thrown their way bad pay lousy job security uh you, they really don't get recognized i mean some teams don't even let their scouts into the draft war room from what i've heard so yeah it's respect to the scouts because yeah you know, it's you a hard have to love the game so yeah it's a do. hard time yeah hard time to be a scout too because yeah they're kind of getting cut out of the out of the decision making process it seems more and more i know the tigers actually kind of went on a scout signing spree over the past year because so many uh guys were getting cut loose and i, I kind of thought that might be a smart thing to get a little insight into what some other some other organizations are doing i really wanted the tigers to interview gabe kapler just so that Oh boy! Just so that Al Avila <laughs> and Gabe Kapler had to sit face to face and 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 explain to each other their philosophies on baseball, I would have liked to have seen that go down. Yeah, I don't know how that one's going to work out for him. I I don't know. There's uh there's some weird stuff out there about that guy, and uh, we'll see. Yeah. Hey, you know, it, it'll be interesting and entertaining either way, whether it succeeds or if it's just you know this miserable failure. Either way, it's going to be entertaining. So we'll see. Yep. Either way, it was a it was definitely a bold choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, um, you know, before we go, I wanted to ask you um, two two more things. Like one of them, we were gonna we we're kind of gonna talk through a couple. I just want to throw a couple players at you and have you just take a shot at, at where you think they end up. And then I kind of wanted to ask you just to uh, give me two two baseball writers for the uh, the audience here that they should uh, give a follow to. But um, we'll start. Uh-huh. All right. Where do you think Jake Arrieta ends up? Oh, Jake Arrieta. Shoot, <laughs> that's probably the toughest one because. The contract he merits doesn't seem like the contract he's going to get. So it's a question of who has uh, a pitcher injured get. this spring. <laughs> it might be that. It's also a question of, you know, who's going to get creative financially and um, Jake Arietta. Sheesh. Man, I, I guess I have to say the Phillies because it seems like that's the cleanest path. Yeah, that makes good sense to me, actually. Yeah. Um, all right. Mr. Moustakis. Mike Moustakis. Mm-hmm. 
See, I would have said the Yankees before they traded for Brandon Drury and before uh, Miguel Andujar had this big spring. And I don't think the Yankees are, you know, saying, oh, Andujar had a big spring. He's going to stay in the camp or whatever. I don't think they're silly or anything like that. But I do think they're at least open to the potential of having him break camp with the big league team. Uh, you know, the Royals would make a lot of sense. I don't know if they're willing to do that. The Braves <laughs> make so much sense, but it yeah. doesn't seem like they're willing to do it. Uh, yeah, I'm going to play it safe and go with the Royals, but I have no confidence. That's the thing. I don't have any confidence whether any of these guys are going to land anymore. It's, yeah. yeah, it's really disappointing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, you know that Justin, I don't know if you read that Justin Upton interview. Um, it was in oh, The Athletic. That was oh, great. Yeah, I read that. Pedro Ooh. Mora is fantastic. Yeah, He's he really is. Me, which makes me very envious because he is a heck of a talent and... Yeah, that interview was very revealing on yep. many different levels. Yep, Jay Up will tell it like it is. Um, I, I, yeah, yes. th- I'd like to see them go and uh, talk to Mr. Kinsler about that, too. Ian Kinsler will have some choice quotes for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Always does. All right, so, and then I'm, I got two teams. Because, you know, the Giants, they went out, they did a lot of things. Um, you okay. know, I don't know how much Andrew McCutcheon and Evan Longoria and Austin Jackson are really going to do for them, but um, they're, yeah. they're taking a crack, and that's respectable. Um, yeah. What one thing do they need to uh, to make this thing work? If there is health. one thing, health. Yeah, you know, yeah, McCutcheon, Longoria. I mean, Longoria. He had a reputation a few years ago as not being uh, durable. He's changed that. But if McCutcheon stays healthy, if Posey stays healthy, Bumgarner, their other pitchers, and Equato. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mark Melanson. Even you know, those guys stay healthy. They're going to be competitive. And I don't know if they have enough firepower to. To throw in the Dodgers, probably not. I don't know if anyone has enough firepower to throw in them, but I think they have enough firepower to be very competitive in the wild card race, and that's going to be a very fun division. I mean, you have four teams who are seemingly legitimate contenders, and you also have the Padres, who are kind of a favorite of mine for late night games because you know I, I really like Manuel Margot. I think he's you know I think he's a star in the waiting, and he also has some you know fun uh, other players, but yeah. I would say health is the most important thing for the Dodgers. Excuse me, the Giants. Well, it's the most important thing for the Dodgers as well, but especially for the Giants. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If those guys can hang in there, they they might have a shot. Although I still yeah. I still feel like they need to sign a pitcher if they're really going to do this. Uh, it makes so much sense. Yeah. All right, and then uh, one more. The this one's in our division. You know, the Twins are kind of looked at as you know at least having a shot at the wild card again. Do you yeah. think they can get there as as constructed, or do they need a pitcher as well? <laughs> Well, they could, I mean, it seems like every team could use a pitcher. If only there were a few available in the free agent market, you know, but... Um, no one wants Lance Lynn? I can't believe no one is signing Lance Lynn right now. It doesn't make sense to me, him or Cobb. Uh, with the Twins, you know, I think they're going to fatten up the record playing some of these ever-American League Central teams. You know, the Royals, the Tigers, they both look horrible. The White Sox are going to be probably the third-place team, and even then, they're at least a year away, maybe two, depending on what they do. So... Yeah, I, I buy the Twins as being competitive for the wild card. I'm not going to say that they're my favorite. Um, I'm not sure I'm willing to make that kind of commitment. But, yeah, I don't think last year was a total fluke. I think they will be in the 80-plus win range again. And I think that they have had a decent offseason. Um, I actually forgot they had signed Addison Reed until I saw him pitch in spring training game. And I was like, oh, yeah, they also signed one of the best relievers available. And they got you know Fernando Rodney and Logan Morrison on a very good deal. Jake Odorizzi, I love that deal for them. And, yeah, I would like to see him sign one more pitcher because if they go into the season with Annabelle Sanchez slotted for meaningful playing time, even if it's just temporarily, I feel like that's a failed opportunity. Excuse me, a missed opportunity and a failure on their part. Yeah, 
I think they they probably would have done better to get Mike Ferris um, back earlier in the season. Yeah. I've, I've seen the Anibal Sanchez show for. It's a little bar, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty pretty rough out there, and yeah, the White Sox are interesting because you know the thing I keep reminding people is that yeah, the the farm system looks awesome, but they had Jose Quintana, Adam Eaton, and Chris yeah. Sale, and couldn't do anything, you know, anything at all. So I think it's still yeah, yeah it's not a foregone conclusion, obviously, that they're going to uh, they're going to juggernaut their way to the top here anytime in the near future, but. No, you're right. Uh, you never know. And yeah, it, it was you know pretty hard to believe that they would get a better core than the one they had, and they failed to make the postseason. And it just goes to show, you know, there's no guarantees in baseball. You're right. So take the shots while you can, because you never know. There it is. Amen. Take your shots, people. Yeah. All right. And then, uh, yeah, you have uh, two writers to give a shout out to here. Uh, and... two? Oh, I got more than two. I know. I know. This could be a problem for you, actually. This probably isn't fair uh... of me, because you're going to end up not... Not I'm gonna name like I'm gonna name like ten, and then you know people can follow two of the ten if they want to. But I only name two. I'm gonna get a lot of angry messages. Yeah, you go right uh, ahead. <laughs> what, what kind of writers are we talking? Are we talking beat writers? Are we talking analytical, just interesting writers, or any of the above? Any, yep, any of the above. Are we talking about? I mean, we're probably not talking about super established writers then, right? Like everybody follows Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh and Jonah Carey and those types. So yeah, they should know that. I'm gonna go. Yep. All right, I'll go. Um, all right, so Patrick Dubuque because mm, yeah, yeah, he's outstanding. Uh, Adam Sosby is perhaps the best baseball writer when he's actually writing about baseball. He's just incredibly skilled and intelligent. Uh, Emma Bachelary, she's very good, um, and she's super young. So you know, <laughs> there's the next Ben Lindbergh right there. Um, <laughs> Let's see here. Robert O'Connell does great work. I don't know how well read he or you know, I don't know how many people read him, but he does outstanding work. Uh let's keep going. I'm gonna name like two more, I think. Uh Rachel McDaniel at BP. Oh yeah. Again, very good, very talented, very young. And let's see here, who gets the last spot? Who who am I not going to get an angry message from if they listen to this? <laughs> um they won't listen to it. Don't you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, we're this at the end of like an hour and a half or whatever. So we're safe. I think you're good. No, no one is going to get to hear this. I just, just us. But uh, I'll offer. I'll actually offer a prize if they can name everyone hey, you mentioned. <laughs> oh, I thought you were gonna offer a name, and I was just gonna be like, "Yep, they're great." No, I'll, um, I'll just say there's an awful lot of great uh, women writers coming into baseball, and it's awesome. Yes, it's like really no, good you're to right. see. And you know, those opportunities were not presented to them. Um, until recently, really, it's kind of, you know, it's pathetic. There's no excuse for how poorly represented women and other minority groups have been in this industry. And I'm glad that it's changing, but it's long overdue. Yep. Yep. And got a ways, ways to go. Definitely. Absolutely. RJ, thanks very much. I really appreciate you coming on, man. Um, you can follow RJ at R underscore J underscore Anderson on Twitter as you should and follow him and, uh, and read him at CBS sports. Um, you can find me at Fiscadoro 74 as always on Twitter. RJ, thanks for being here. Thank you. And thank you for the Dennis Johnson reference in your Twitter handle. You're a good person just for that alone. Uh, One of my favorite novels, yep. (laughs) You have a good night. You too.